my poems are about being seen. Because work is so important, we not only work for the cause, for the company, to increase, to get the numbers better. We work because we want to be seen at something that we are good at. We want to be seen in w- when we are struggling with something. And I think that's what I'm also trying to, to say sometimes. I want to be seen on Hi, you're listening to Looks Like Work. I'm your host, Chedma Kleinler, and yeah, it's the least pronounceable name you've ever heard, but you'll get used to it. I'm a serial entrepreneur who's obsessed with curiosity, creativity, and grit, and that's just to get started. I really can't get enough of learning more about people's career choices. What fulfills them? How do they deal with burnout, with heartbreak? How do they protect their boundaries? And is it all even working? Those are questions that keep me up at night and I hope to explore here. On this podcast, we'll have deep conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, people juggling a few jobs, sometimes even a few industries, sharing what looks like work for them. With that, on to the episode. I really hope you'll enjoy it. Gilevan. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It is so funny for me to have conversations with you where we record that. To anyone who doesn't know, we had a live on Facebook a few weeks ago, and now we're doing this. Gilly, for people unlike me who haven't been <laughs> just sharing your stuff for years, tell us who you are. That's an interesting one because it keeps changing. But my professional title is I'm the head of development for an organization called Bafami. It's um, British Friends of the Art Museums of Israel. I've been working for this organization for nearly five years. It's a philanthropic organization. Uh, we are UK-based, but we're raising funds for educational programs run by uh, 14 art museums in Israel. So that's my official title. Apart from that, and it's something that I need to get used to, I'm about to publish a book called This Time with Attachment. And it's about the ordinary life of work in the 21st century, but not in a heavy way. It's short uh, poems about behind the scenes of uh, the world of work, be it annoying emails, conversation that you have in the canteen or conversation that you have while you're waiting for your um, espresso machine to, to wake up, working from home, of course, uh, this annoying part when you realize that you are not on mute and everyone could hurt what you just said to your um, child or your partner or something like that. Uh, yeah, and beside that, I've been living in London for uh, seven years already. I have two girls. One of them is four-year-old. The other one is nine months. Can you believe you're an actual author? No, I can't. <laughs> I think it was kind of like my dream since I was five-year-old to see my name in print. I'm a writer. I used to be a journalist. I, I used to write uh, blogs and a few, a few columns, but author of a book, that's, that's the first time it happened. So it's, it's uh, a nice surprise. Oh, my God. It was my dream as well. I think since I read... Little Women, and I decided to be Joe March. And by the way, like my dad still doesn't understand why at 34 I haven't published anything yeah. yet. So I think I could definitely relate. So Gilly, we had like, this podcast is still pretty relatively new. We had a lot of entrepreneurs on it, whether it is a market research uh, CEO, a Broadway actor who's also a voice coach, 
a designer. And I think what's interesting about your path is, first of all, many, many things. But one of the interesting things is really that you've decided that you want to have a corporate job or at this point, maybe not corporate, but like a nine to five job. And you want to do what you're passionate about as a side gig. The interesting thing is not only that, it's like a clear choice. And that's kind of the equilibrium, the balance that really works for you for several early years already. But also that you are pretty well known for your side gig, at least at least in Israel. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about how it started. And then we can explore that tricky balance thing as well. First, I haven't mentioned that the book is in Hebrew. So I, I work with British crowd and in a British environment. And at the same time, I write in Hebrew and I publish in Hebrew. So it's kind of, I always, I always say that I live in two different time zones. I always know what the time is in London and in Tel Aviv. Well, when I, when I started my career path, I really wanted to be a journalist, be it research or investigator, or later I was thinking more of like the, the cultural side of that. And I started as an editor in a local newspaper. And I love this world, even though, you know, it's, you're always underpaid and, you know, the, the conditions are like a joke. I know. <laughs> I really like I remember. It. Yeah. <laughs> I like the surrounding. I like the way the, the, the desks look. I like the, 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 those cigarettes in the corridors. I mm-hmm. like everything. The, the smoke, the, the noise of the machine. It was very romantic for me. But then, you know, uh, I grew up a little bit and I understood that it's <laughs> Romantic is nice. It's not enough. At some point, I decided to take a break. I moved to like a digital platform. It was like a lifestyle website. And I was working nearly 24-7. It was more like a startup because you it was a small team and everyone are doing everything and it's really, really important and you want to get the traffic. And at some point, I just realized that I'm going to bed with my laptop at 1 a.m. and I wake up at 7 a.m. And that's the first thing that, that I know. It was before I had an iPhone or, or, or a smartphone. And after 10 months, I literally collapsed mentally and physically. I decided to take a break. I mean, I think I was too young mentally to understand that I should stop or to set up some boundaries before I literally collapsed. And I said, can't do it anymore. I'm living it. And, you know, and I slammed the door and that's how it ends. And it's not healthy, but I was, I think, 27 back then. And I guess I can say not not mature enough or I just couldn't cope. I remember that I decided to take a break and I didn't look for another job back then. I went back to the university to finish my BA. I took fashion merchandising course in Shankar School of Design and Engineering just because I wanted to do something which is interesting. And somehow I found myself in a committee, in a steering committee for a fashion event that took place in a local museum in Holon, which is in the suburbs of Tel Aviv at a wonderful museum. I fell in love with the place, with the people. And at some point, I just said, you know, I just quit my job. I really like this place. I like the content. If you ever have a job offer, I'll be more than happy to to give it a try. And I can't believe it, but they just decided someone was going on maternity leave and they say, we need you to replace someone. 
And from temporary, it became something that I did for two years. I was working for, for the Design Museum in Holon as marketing and communication uh, manager, officer, director. I can't remember even what was my title, the exact title. And I learned so much about, first of all, about marketing and about culture and museology. And that led me to, to decide and try and study curation. And then I also got married and my husband said, well, if you want to do an MA in curation, why don't we do it abroad? We just got married. We still don't have children. I think now is a good time. And I was saying, I don't, I don't think I can, I can do an MA in English. I'm so Israeli. I'm so local. You know, Hebrew is my language. I don't think I'm capable. And he was just, just try, just apply. And I applied to uh, an MA program called Cultural Criticism and Curation at Central St. Martin's School of Art in London. Which is, to whoever doesn't know, the university where Alexander McQueen went, yeah. I think, right? And many, many other notable designers. I went to London back then in the days when you can just say, okay, here's a ticket and I'm flying to London for four days. <laughs> I went to an open day. I fell in love with the school and I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. I applied, I got in, and then we decided to move here. The MA program was amazing. It was an international program, 20 students from all over the world. London is the, really the capital of culture, of art. Every day I went to another gallery opening, museum talk, performance, you name it. I had so much fun. I learned a lot from that program, not only academically, but also in terms of how to approach things. And maybe we will get to that together when we talk about what I do today. And then I finished school. How do you say? I graduated with merit. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was looking for a job. And then it hit me. I'm a nobody. I'm just, mm. no one knows me. In a big front. Yeah. yeah. My experience has no meaning. I'm, I'm very nice and talented and I have an MA from Central St. Martins, but I am nobody. I tried to apply to Tate, to the Barbican, to the National Gallery, to, you know, unknown galleries on the other hand. And I just kept receiving no, 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 no. At some point, uh, a friend helped me to get a job in, how would you say, communication strategy office, which is a nice name for a PR office. I started working there as a digital manager, and it took me a week to understand that there is nothing to do in that place. I was sitting all day in front of my screen. It was a very strict place. You had to be by your computer at 9 a.m. If you are there at 9.15, you will get a fine or something like that. <laughs> you need to go. If you have a doctor appointment, you have to write it down and get a special permission. <laughs> you cannot leave your desk before 6 p.m. It was really... Like the, the cliche, a great place for an Israeli. <laughs> yeah, the cliche of cold open space with strict rules. And I was very frustrated because although I got a job and salary, and I could say that I have, you know, this line in my, in my CV, like this local experience, I was doing nothing. And I felt like nothing. And then I started writing short poems, short funny poems about office life. I published them on Facebook and it got really, really popular. And at some point it, I was invited to publish them in a newspaper in, in Israel. And then boom, it exploded. 
And I got many, many, many friends requests. And I opened a Facebook page without doing anything. It got to 4,000 people on the first day. Amazing. And this became kind of like my, my diary where I work, when I write about my work experience. And then I started writing about finding a new job because I decided to quit that place. Then I had to write about myself as an unemployed and then about myself as someone who is looking for a new job. You know, there is a poem about me trying to work on my profile on LinkedIn, for example. <laughs> I was working as uh, self-employed a little bit, uh, doing all kinds of projects. So, you know, some poems about clients, the requirements, uh, VS, what they're willing to, to give, not to say to pay. And I want to stay on that that shift, that first shift that you did from being a journalist or, you know, being a producer, being in the world of journalism. And I totally relate to that kind of aura that it has, you know, it's like very sexy to be in journalism. And I think you were like, I was a freelancer when I did that. You were really at the core of it and like the zeitgeist in Israel and Tel Aviv. And it was probably very appealing. And then you went to the design museum and I want to ask you because my kind of the way I would do it just like you worked until 1am and kind of just got a burnout right you just like experienced that kind of crisis my way to do it probably was okay then I'll go to the design museum and now I'm even more passionate about what I do because it's design and I love it and I want to study curation and I would probably just replicate exactly the same behavior, right? Uh, working until 1am, 2am, uh, not thinking about boundaries. So I'm wondering what happened then that kind of gave you that backbone or helped you create that backbone and really decide and not only decide, but really stick to it that yes, I love my job. I love it so much that I'm actually going to go to another place to learn it and to have like a lot of challenges like studying in English, having to build a new network and a new friend circle probably. And still, even though you sacrificed a lot and you loved it, you were strong enough to uphold some kind of boundary. Can you talk about that? I think the first thing that I faced when I moved to the design museum, I think I worked with people who were a bit older than me. I mean, it was more significant than when I was a journalist, when I was working as a journalist, I was very, I was young mentally and also my age was, was young. So it mm -hmm. was all about working, doing everything, being very active, do all the time, do, 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 you know, in the doing. Yeah. And then I moved to a place when I first met curators and curators, they need time. They need time to research. They need time to think. They need time to think of the title of each section of the exhibition and what will be. So, and suddenly I understood that, okay, uh, although I was in marketing, and it's really important for me already to, you know, to release the name of the next exhibition so I can start to help the selling the tickets, etc., and income and all of that. I just said, no, I will wait another week because now we need to get this right. There was something in, you know, working with people who are like more creators or the Packaging the content. Also, when you are a journalist, you package content. And curation for me was a different way of storytelling. It's to tell a story in a, in a visual way, using other senses. It, it's not 
wasn't that flat as because when I was a journalist, a writer and editor, so everything was for printed uh, materials, was it online or, or magazines? Uh, so suddenly there was another way of storytelling. And I think this aspect, along with the fact that I was working with people who were more mature, they had families, they were parents, some of them had grandchildren. I understood that the rhythm must change. And it took me also a while to understand that if I want to define myself, but that came in, in another, uh, like later, if I want to define myself, I don't have to define myself just with my work title, my working title. That's a huge thing about identity. I think sometimes it's just easier to identify with your job title or what you do at work. It doesn't require more thought and more self-perspective, maybe. Yeah. Suddenly meeting people who are taking one day off because they study on that day, and it's legit, and it's not like you are, you are a young journalist and you're still doing your BA at the university, but you're not really there. They are studying because they want to develop themselves. So there was something, I think, with the rhythm. And also, I think I got burned out mm-hmm. so hard that I had to, I had to make this change and I had to kind of like admit, and it wasn't easy for me. I had to admit this kind of lifestyle is not for me. I wish I could, you know, but then I had to change my dream. If I wanted to be a journalist, now I had to go and find another dream. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's interesting because you said before, I really liked how you put it. And you told me that in the past as well, that you live in two different time zones, British one and the Israeli one. The funny thing is that they're very close. Mm-hmm. In actuality, it's only two hours apart, right? Right. But I'm interested in how you felt, you know, when you, you've done that transition first in your studies and then in your, in your career and life, essentially, how did you and do you feel the changes in temperament when it comes to really boundaries, career, pursuing your passion without burning yourself, essentially? First of all, there is a huge cultural gap. Mm-hmm. I did some mistakes when I moved to London, professional, like, as I like to say, I was too Israeli. I was very direct. You know, there is a difference between chutzpah, which is a common, a common definition for something, and for being rude. Chutzpah is not being rude. Chutzpah is dare to do something. Being rude is not listening to other people, cutting off people verbally, but also, you know, in, in mind. As much as I think of myself as a polite person, I, I was, I'm, I'm sure that I insulted a few people or I was like a, the know-it-all women. <laughs> and it took me some time to understand. And sometimes, now I'm getting sometimes the, the other re- reaction. People tell me, oh, come on, be Israeli about that. <laughs> or they say, you are too polite, you're too nice. Or, or when they, as it's a, bad th- it's a bad thing. I don't think being too nice or too polite is a bad thing, if, if you ask me. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I, I heard a podcast, maybe you've heard it, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. No. Oh, he yeah. has a great, great episode about chutzpah, which many, many English speakers know the word chutzpah, even more in like it's Yiddish pronunciation and he has a really interesting episode about chutzpah and chutzpah are not the same thing Mm. chutzpah just like you said is daring being courageous thinking outside the box maybe pushing a little bit then chutzpah is being rude (laughs) and 
for us Israelis, it's sometimes because the culture is so different, it's hard to really decipher where that line is. And the thing that really you should, you absolutely have to listen to that episode is because apparently Malcolm Gladwell is a na- neighbor of Milia Vital, <laughs> a very famous uh, ex-Israeli, Israeli-American actress. And she tries to teach him how to say the word chutzpah. <laughs> it's hilarious. I've listened to it like six months ago and my husband still imitates it. <laughs> it's like very, very funny. I think it's a great lesson. I should definitely uh, listen to to this piece because I think one thing that I learned here in in the UK is the difference between chutzpah and chutzpah. And you can you can get a lot with chutzpah. You can get a lot with 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 that. And it's nice. Oh, but with being rude and with being chatzuf is <laughs> is is just and sometimes I remember about things that I did when I was and I can't believe that I acted that way. But it's one of the most important sentence, uh, important uh, lessons that I learned in my professional career, for sure. It's interesting. I think it's a great tool to have in your tool belt, like being a little bit chutzpan or chutzpanit. But if you use it blindly, it can definitely mislead you in life generally and definitely in cultures where people are not used to that. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, when you started... I want to go also into how the poems played into that because uh, I have a theory that I'm interested in hearing if I'm right or wrong about it. Talking about kind of the nine to five lifestyle because London is a very fast paced city and it has, I'm watching industry. Have you seen it? It's like a TV show. Not yet. Yeah. So, so it does have like a crazy pace sometimes. And then at the other end, we also as Israelis maybe have like this, dream or fantasy of everything like being very proper and very kind of slow paced so how did you feel that in your work uh, when you actually started working at and in places in London I remember when I just joined the charity organization I'm working for and they had a special fundraising lunch and they were working on the table arrangement and I was like why is that even important who cares let's do a buffet <laughs> And then I just learned that this is the most important thing. Who needs to be seated with whom? And you can have, you can even raise more money if you have the table set properly. So, and that was a thing I was like, oh, you know, when we do uh, opening to exhibition shows in Israel, you just have a buffet and you have, you know, shawarma and china and it's very, very, no, here you have first course and second course and master of ceremony. So at the beginning, I looked at it and I felt, as I said, I know it all. I know how to do it better. But then I told myself, wait, wait, don't do, observe. And I learned that, okay, this is how you can make it even better. And this is a whole culture that is unfamiliar for me. The art of fundraising, it is art. There is a certain way of doing it. It's a profession. One thing that I now adore with British culture and, and, and British working industry is um, things are fair. I mean, you have terms and conditions for everything. You have health and safety instruction for everything, which, as we know in Israel, you just, <laughs> you have the kombina. You have, yeah, 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 and we will do it. And you have this, in Israel, we call it the small letters. You don't have small letters in Britain. You read them. They are, they are big letters. They are large and then you know, if when you come to sign a deal, you know what are you getting, what are you giving, 
and how it's going to work together. Whilst in Israel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now about to uh, print my book. Suddenly, in the small letter, it said, oh, and if we don't provide 5% of the books that you require, it's still as we provided you everything. I was like, <laughs> what? Are you actually saying that you're giving me 95% of what I've asked you, and you say, no, this is 100%? You are... It's a lie. You're already prepared to like not honor the deal. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes the, the, I, came, I remember when I came to open a bank account here in the UK and I didn't have the proof of address and all the paperwork and it was almost impossible to do it because it has to be very, very, very strict and, and very clear. So yeah, of course there are some obstacles with that. And you know, in Israel you can go and you can ask a favor, you can get to someone that you know who will help you, which sometimes is, is great because it makes you understand that there is always a way. Someone closes the door, I'll get from the window. They go, I'll, I'll get from the, I don't know, the roof. In some way I kind of like felt, I got used to, or I fell in love to this strict and clear reality. When I'm now trying to, to do business in Israel, sometimes it's, it is hard because I need, to, I need to remember that you always have to, you know, be a friend of the seller, do some schmooze, do some... You have to, to grow your sabra back. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I'm curious to hear... Okay, listen to my theory. My theory is that when you started and kept on writing your poems... which I love and I feel, I feel like they're the soundtrack to my career pretty much. Thank you. Uh, if, they were, if they had music, they could be. Maybe think about that. Yeah. So I feel like when you write these poems, it's not only you kind of commenting or using it as your outlet, but it's also your way to kind of, just like you said before, not be in it, but observe it from... The sidelines or from above like have a different perspective and while especially in kind of the British corporate uh, and nonprofit world you can kind of be there and say oh this is interesting this is weird and as some of our listeners probably our Israeli listeners know the beginning of the poems was based on this format these poems that That were called Azoni uh, this kid is me so it's almost even like an, a childlike wonder why is this like it mm-hmm. right so can you talk a little bit about that and about why you chose to start start writing it in this particular cadence and format and how it evolved from there and, and got its own kind of life and personality so the reference to To Yuda Atlas, the, the poet that I'm referring to in, in my in poems, it was all about a child who says the truth. He says that his parents annoy him sometimes. <laughs> he says that sometimes he has one friend that he really likes and the other one, he cannot stand him, but he prefers to be with the one that he can stand because then they fight and it's more interesting. <laughs> he tells about the girl that he loves, he tells about... When he washes his hands, the, the funny part is just to have cold water on, his, on the tip of his fingers. <laughs> It's about little things and real feelings. And what I was trying to do with my poems is kind of the same little things and, and truth about, the, about, about work, about our surrounding, our open spaces, I had a conversation with a psychologist who was a doctor and she researched the, the work-life balance and corporations, etc. And she said that today the workplace, it's like the kindergarten because 
we work together, we create together, we fight, we then mediate, we have conflict, etc. So my poems were like, they were a bit childish, but they're in the grown-ups world. And there is always the, the difference between us being childish, but we wear suits, we wear heels, we talk really, really nice. And always when, when I look at people who are like very impressive, I always ask myself, do, are they like that all the time when they say to their wife, to their children? That they're so impressive. Am I impressive too? No, I'm always a bit childish. It's, it's a lot of questions about others and about myself. Those poems are kind of like, again, my, my thoughts and my, my diary because, again, when I write them, I wrote, you know, about being pregnant and going to work and then about having a child and going to work and then having a business trip and have my child. What do I want more? To be with my child? Oh, I want to go to the duty free and I want to go to that amazing <laughs> in Paris now with no... And, you know, sometimes I want both, especially now during COVID. Of course, we want, you know, we just longing to, to get back to a work when we are outside of the house. But when we were working like crazy, we wanted to be back. And by the way, I had to, uh, I also wrote about the, about COVID, working during, during COVID, working from home, working with your children all around, working through Zoom. When you do Zoom, what are, we, what are you looking at? The person or his background? What's more interesting? You know, that's when we, when we do Zoom, we look at ourselves. Yeah, you know, it's it's so hard. I remember when I was doing the crowdfunding for, for uh, my book, I, I filmed a really nice like fundraising film and, and I brought a makeup artist and I look at myself and I was like, oh, I look so good with the makeup and with the suit. You do. Yeah, I do. I know I do. And I had a, a meeting with a film editor and I saw myself in the film. I was like, oh, I look good. And Right after that, I had a Zoom meeting with a team that works on my book, the editor and the graphic designer and the illustrator. And I looked at myself in the Zoom and I was with my, my little baby who was then uh, seven months, it was two, two months ago. And I look at myself in my pajama in 8 a.m. in the morning. And who is this lady here? And who is that lady who was wearing a suit and makeup? And I couldn't stand the way I look in the Zoom screen. And I remember... I, I, I saw it and I just started like, I was bursting into tears. And I said, I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't know what's going on. I was then self-isolated because I was exposed to someone who had COVID. It was before I had COVID myself. And it was something like, who am I? Am I that lady? Am I this lady? Am I a mother? Am I a author? Am I a working person, working mom? And there was something, I think, with those screens, with the fact that you see yourself all the time and you see yourself, as we know, at home, wearing training or pajama with uh, no uh, manicure, pedicure or hairstylist around. It's tough. It's meeting yourself over and over and over again. It's like asking yourself over and over and over again, who am I? Am I happy? It's also meeting yourself over and over again in a specific way. That's right. It's not in the most complimenting <laughs> way. And I, I really love that you said that because I, I never thought about it and we just had a conversation before we started recording about getting dressed <laughs> and about mm-hmm. how I dream about the day I can go and get a facial. I really like feel my, my skin closing up on me. And I remember, I remember as I told you, just a few weeks before the first lockdown started, I was on a four-week business trip to the U.S. 
And I was complaining uh, that I have to be so long, I have to be far from home for so long on my birthday, because I'm a birthday monster. Mm-hmm. And that I need to be on all the time and you know in meetings and leave great first impressions. And when the first lockdown started, I felt like I was very scared for the world, but I also felt a sense of relief. I can be home with my son who hasn't seen me for three weeks in a row for a few years, and I can just let it all go not not in a bad way not in like uh you know uh let myself go but like let it all down relax a little bit I remember like the first time I didn't wear like a dress but I wore like just a, a zoom shirt and you know leggings and I said okay now I can also do yoga right after that wow it's amazing yeah I was like I thought I discovered something like wow this is the best way to to operate and to do business while you're also at home And then now when my Facebook memories from that trip last year come up, I'm looking at myself and I say, I'm saying like exactly like what he said about identity. I miss that Hedva because we are, we are a few different people and we have all been reduced to only one. Even when we're at work, we have noise or kids on top of us or something we have to take off the oven or the stovetop or something like that yeah so I love I love that you're talking about that and I think like one of the interesting things about what you said about like kind of being childlike and I don't see it so much as childish so much as just like this questioning right because as adults we're like supposed to have all the answers Right. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I didn't know until uh, one of our conversations a few weeks ago is that it's not that you only have a job, which you kind of like, you have an important job. You're like running stuff, right? So in your professional job, you are kind of in that identity of the grown up, of the person who has to have the answers and even like help other people become by like knowing things and kind of directing them. And that gave a whole new meaning for your poems for me, because then I said, Oh, now, now I understand. So I love that. And I want to, <laughs> if you want, I want you to talk about that story with your dog from that PR job, which I didn't <laughs> talk about before because I wanted to save it for now. And how that led to a song. Of course. Well, the dog is right next to me here, <laughs> just so you know. It's, it's also something showing me, I thought it was a cultural gap, but I think it's something else. I started working in that PR office in London and I came to the office and I saw that the, the office founder of the company, the owner of this PR office, she had a dog and she used to bring it to the office and No, I need to say also she used to bring her dog and then she used to ask her PA to take the dog for a walk. And when the PA was not there, then she used to ask one of the directors or the managers to take her dog to, to, for a walk. And I said, oh, that's cool. So there is a, a, an office dog. Oh, I should bring my dog too. And I remember that one day we went for after work drinks and I told them I have a dog. Oh, a dog. So nice. We love dogs. We love dogs. <laughs> morning after, I brought my dog to the office. And then I got an email from a person sitting next to me, literally at a desk next to me. Uh, Dear Gilly, it is very unlikely to bring dog to the office. Uh, Davina brings her dog because she's the owner. Please take care of this. And I was like, 
you are sitting next to me, but don't <laughs> between us. Why don't you just tell me, Gilly, come here a second. But, you know, if that's the way, so I just email back, uh, dear Kunal, thank you for, for bringing that to my attention. I will take care of this. And then uh, I took the dog, of course, over my lunch break, because if I used to, if I've done it uh, on my, on working time, then I would get a fine or something. And I drove on the tube 45 minutes back home and then 45 minutes back to the office. And here I got my lesson. There is the, the dog of, owned by the, the boss and there is my dog. And that was something that taught me a lot about passive aggressive. <laughs> and the, the funny thing is, if I have to tell this story, it's I came to the office with a dog. In the middle of the day, I took the dog back to its home. No one knows what happened because it was all like very, very silent. And on email, it's like nothing happened. It's, it's like, you know, avoiding any kind of a conflict or something like that. It's just, and it just happened. We never talked about it. We never talked about it. I never talked about it with this person. I never talked about it with anyone. They don't know about it. I'm the only person more or less <laughs> me and the other, the other one. And you're probably also the only person who, know, who noted the absurdity of it. Yeah. I mean, it was this place when someone once came with, with, a, with a short sleeve uh, shirt, then suddenly we all got an email. Let's remind ourselves the, the dress code at this office. <laughs> it was very passive aggressive. Yeah. I would say even aggressive aggressive. I don't know. I guess they, will, they, they probably think it's just a way. To do things which is so so funny. which if this thing would have happened in Israel it might be you know the exact opposite it would be someone standing shouting in the middle of the open space guys I just want to remind you today this and that came with a short sleeve so yeah or it might even have been like very aggressive like what do you think to yourself who are you to but it wouldn't have been you know under the radar. And it's a good reminder that workplace aggressions can be silent. They can be loud. There is no one way or the other. Really, you, you're, only the, you're the only judge of it is like how it leaves you feeling. So in your... Yeah. And I think, <laughs> Sorry. I'm saying, I think a lot of my poems are about being seen. Uh, I think because work is so important, we, just, we not only work for the cause, for the company, to increase, to get the numbers better... We work because we want to be seen at something that we are good at. We want to be seen in w- when we are struggling with something. And there are a lot of ways to be seen, good and bad. And I think that's what I'm also trying to, to say sometimes. Like, yeah. I want to be seen also. Yeah, and then you are seen by all the people who relate to you, right? One of the poems is about what do you bring for lunch when you come to work? Because <laughs> when you go for your lunch break and you go to... Uh, to the kitchen and you take out your, your Tupperware with, and, and then what's inside? Is it schnitzel? Is it a unique uh, recipe that you found in, in a restaurant when you traveled to Toscana last year? Is it a takeaway? Is it something that your mom brought you over the weekend? And then in, within, inside this box, there is, there is you mm-hmm. and you can tell about it. You can say, oh, you know, I had such a good weekend and I made this lovely meatballs. You have to try it. I made, you know, my kids love, this is a way to open a conversation and tell something about yourself, about your life, about what you're doing. I'm now working in a, co- in a, in a co-shared space. Actually, for, for many years, I've been working in a co-shared space. And for me, a lot, I, I'm the one who brings vegetables and cat salad in the middle of the kitchen. And then people always come and they comment, 
Oh, is that your lunch? Oh, are you a rabbit? Oh, that looks really delicious. That looks really healthy. And that's a way to start a conversation for me. So yeah, people see me. I'm the healthy one. And then I go and eat. <laughs> it's so amazing. Like all those little ceremonies and things that we don't think about. I thought about it a lot because in my previous startup, we helped employees find mentorship and guidance in the workplace. And once we all went remote, right, the entire world, there were so, so much less opportunities to just strike a conversation, you know, walk, you know, near someone's desk and see what they're working on and ask them if they need, if they need any help or meet in the kitchen and just say, hey, like, uh, Bon appetit. Travel. What are you planning for the weekend? How was your weekend? Things like that. Yeah, you know? and know people, get to know people without the intention of getting to know them. Just because, just because you were there. It's so interesting to see what we're losing out on. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned before how like in one day, 4,000 people found you, right? <laughs> and it has grown since. But I think even more than the numbers, what's interesting for me is the engagement, is people saying, that's me. That's like what's going on. I don't know how you, how you feel that, but even when I share something from you on Instagram, on WhatsApp, I see how in a second, like my friends say, hey, like how did she know? <laughs> and then they share it. And their followers share it. So how has it felt because it's it's come from such a personal place to to be seen so much and to be related to, do you sometimes think, hey, like, no, it's not your your experience. It's mine. It's mine. <laughs> like, <laughs> let me have it. I think, honestly, I'm not saying anything new or original. It's the way that I say it. You know, what I just said about COVID, about working during COVID, about being, you know, a working mom, words and words and books were, were written on this subject. It's just the way that I try to do it, it's just to say it shortly and a bit cynical, being satiric. I, I think that's my contribution is more of the, the how, not on the what. Mm -hmm. I do listen a lot. I listen and I read to people's experiences about work because I'm also very curious about other people's work and their approach to, to work. You know, I always say that I still have the dream one day to work maybe for a corporate, maybe to Google or Wix or you know, a big company and to know how to manage something really, really, really complicated. I want to know if I'm able to do that. On the other hand, yeah, sometimes I say, oh, no, I should open a, a, a boutique coffee shop or something like that. So I always, you know, between, between those dreams. So I do want to listen and to know more about other people and how do they do it. And they can be employees and they can be um, um, self-employed or you know, freelancers or so it's just about, you know, trying to listen to other people's experiences. And of course, sharing my, my own experiences and trying to, I don't know, just make it, just make it short. <laughs> yeah. I think like uh, you're underselling yourself a little bit because it's not only short and satirical, it really punches you in the gut. It's like, oh, wow. How did she know? And I think what you shared before about looking at people and saying, wow, they're really impressive. Are they always like that? Is such a, um, I don't know if it's a common thought, but I know I have it <laughs> uh, many, many times. And I think in my capacity as a founder, you, you have to 
not only be impressive and formal and like you have to be on top of your game you have to be very charismatic which is you know think about it it's not even a logical thing to ask from someone to be charismatic all the time because it's like that's magic and are those like people who give TED talks and who are on conferences and are always like on top of their game where do where do they draw that from like what do they eat what's in their food exactly how do they know how do they have like the the right wording the right outfit it's it's a lot about like also the how they look yeah what did, who, who taught them where did they learn is there a secret book that I'm missing that I have to read I think we all I hope we all wonder that okay so we're reaching uh, unfortunately the end of our conversation to get mm-hmm. back to work and I wanted to ask you you just completed a successful fundraising campaign for the book. After how many years of writing the poems? Uh, nearly six. Wow. It's like a chunk of life, right? Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, how it feels, but also during the campaign, you pretty much had to work at raising the money. And I know that's something that you do at work. How did it feel to take like your hobby or your side gig, which is more than a lot of people's hobby because you You actually had a lot of flowers you got published before but that thing where you're doing for fun where it's not your nine to five where you chose for it not to be your nine to five you chose to do something else and really work at it how was it it's a good question and I think I will answer it um, in a, I'll give a few tips maybe that's right it was my personal project and it was me that I was selling but the only way for me to do it successfully is to kind of like hold back from that and be a little bit of like external and look at this as project at not gilly it's not me I'm selling here a book I'm selling here a character and it's not me and this is not the time to say oh this person didn't back up this is a person uh, I was hoping for him to back it up with more money no 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 this is not the case that's why I invested a lot of money in doing a good campaign film okay and I wanted to look good. I wanted to, to see that people will, will watch the film and will say, oh, that's funny. I want the book. I want more of her. And then it was writing sometimes as myself and sometimes as kind of like a character, that character of, of a working mom who is very childish and something she's very sensitive and sometimes she's very funny. And just to be out there, I had to see... What works for, for other people? I saw that people are not interested in buying my lecture. They're interested in the book. Okay, so I will promote the book. I saw that people are really interested to read about food. That was hilarious. <laughs> Every poem that has anything with food was, whoa, boom, exploding. So at some point, you know, I offered like a, 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 an incentive that included homemade cookies or something like that. And it worked. That is so funny because it's like so interesting to see what really, what makes people tick. And we're still so primal in that sense. <laughs> that it's just the basic things in life. Yeah. And I saw that people like to laugh, but they also, I was very surprised to see that sometimes I was, I ask if they would like to hear uh, a story or two behind the behind the lines behind the poems and they were all yes please and those were like long posts I didn't even think that someone will have the patience to to read it and they loved it and that make it made me more familiar with them and they loved what they saw what they read 
and they supported the book. So, so that was really great. Yeah, I found myself involved with some new communities. I tried to, you know, expand my, my reach. I was working at this while I was working also for a big fundraising event for the charity that I'm running. Because as you know, the museums in Israel need our help every day, but this year especially. So yeah, so I was working nine to five with, with a charity, with Bafami. And then I would spend two hours with my daughter. I was scheduling a post for, you know, 7 p.m., which is 9 p.m. in Israel. And then at night, on one hand, I was holding my baby. The other hand was, you know, editing the book, thinking of campaigns, answering questions and things like that. So it wasn't the easiest month. I was working hard. But it's not that, you know, it was one month. You know, I got prepared. I had like around six years to think about this book and the the way I wanted to be promoted. And I knew that I wanted to be a self-publishing book. Uh, I knew that I can do it with a little help of my friends, as you say. <laughs> the only thing I could say that, yeah, I took it really, really seriously. And at the same time, I didn't take it too personally. I had to understand this is now a business. This is how I run a fundraising event for the charity. But this charity this time is the book. It's not even Gil. Great that you were able to do that because it's so hard to, to separate ourselves emotionally from something that we're so involved in. Listen, I, I won't lie. There were some hard moments here. There were some moments, oh, it's not going to happen. And, you know, there were hard days. There were ups and downs all the time. And it, COVID during this campaign. And lots of things happened here. And I didn't have childcare in part of the time. It was hard. It was hard. But it's something that I decided that I would like to do. It was only a month. It was doable, you say. How did it feel once, once you got to 100%? And you eventually surpassed it. It was great. It was a day before my birthday. Oh. So it was the best birthday gift. I was very happy. Deep inside, I knew that I would do it. Uh, I took a screenshot of this and I sent it to my father. And I said, Dad, are you proud of me? And he said, I was always proud of you. So That is uh, so funny. sweet. You know, we gained things in our life. But at the end, I go back to my, my mother and my father and say, ah, oh, proud of me yes okay good then of course i i just sent my mom <laughs> a birthday message that someone wrote me to show see people love me <laughs> yeah. yeah all come to that we're all children deep inside totally some of us not that deep <laughs> yeah yeah awesome so we're getting to the last two questions are you ready yes so the first one really goes back to what we opened this conversation with. And it's a tweet by someone called Katie Leeson. Who I don't know her, but I'm actually going to reach out to her because I'm using that tweet of hers at every episode. And she wrote a while ago this tweet. She says, we need to stop glamorizing overworking, please. The absence of sleep, good diet, exercise, relaxation, and time with friends and family isn't something to be applauded. Too many people wear their burnout as a badge of honor and it needs to change, which is reading this was like a mic drop moment for me, wearing our burnout as a badge of honor. And I know you've had your journey with it. And I think uh, you've done more successfully dealing with it than many people I know, myself very much included. And I'm wondering, kind of like almost closing thoughts, what do you think about it? Not only as it relates to you, even though that would be very interesting, but this concept of 
when people ask how you are, like, how are you? And you say, I'm busy. And it's like, that validates you. What do you think about that in our society? And I think that's global, not only in Israel or only in London or in the US. I think I have a love-hate relationship with this because on one hand, I, I think sometimes we think that being busy means being important. And we want to feel important. And as I said before, we want to be seen. And if you're busy, it means that people need you and you want to be in need. And yes, yeah, sometimes when the workflow is low and I see other people who are very important and they're running from one meeting to another and they have lots of emails. Oh, no, I cannot talk to you right now. I'm, I'm, I'm late for a meeting. I'm like, hmm, I wish I had that too. But it, it's, a slippery, it's a slippery road because on the other hand, sometimes when, when I get burned out, when it gets too busy, I'm literally feeling that I'm, I'm losing my mind. I feel that I'm on a roller coaster and, and I cannot get off. And that's not, it's not, it's never a good sign. So I don't, I don't sound like to be very cliche and say, oh, it's all about the balance <laughs> to, to find what is, what is the meaning of me being seen? And sometimes the answer is not within your workplace, but maybe in another place, another community, another place, friends, kids. You know, on, on the first lockdown, fortunately, I mean, I, I couldn't work. I was very, very pregnant. My work, which is based on events, basically I had nothing to do because we couldn't do anything and it was just the beginning of it. And I became a full-time mommy for a three-year-old daughter and I invested all of myself in that. It did give me something. I taught her to read Hebrew, we did math, we did a lot of, you know, arts and crafts and all the things that now I cannot even think about it because, you know, it's so <laughs> long, I cannot think about it anymore. And plus, I'm working and I'm, I'm, I'm eager to work. If, if it's not clear, I, I, I think I do have a dream job. I really like my, the, what I'm doing and the people I work with. But it was another way for me to be seen. Yeah, it was with my daughter and I could share it, you know, sometimes yeah, I, I did share it with my sister and my mother. See what Gaia did today with me. I'm so proud of myself that I invented this and that and that I managed her to do this and that. So you can always find the meaning yes. somewhere else. Not always, but look for that. I can really relate. I threw myself in the first lockdown. Things really slowed down at work. We eventually closed the startup and I threw myself into... creating this structured schedule daily schedule which I told myself I'm doing for my son it was actually very much for me yeah. and it was very validating and we both were sick with covid at some point in the last year and I think one of the uh, most troubling things beyond like feeling terrible is that it's debilitating it's you have to you have to rest you really can't work at some point and And even after you're better, if you try to work at the same pace you do always, it's just very hard. And it asks you, it begs the questions that you said, who am I without being busy? What am I afraid that will happen if I'm not busy? If nobody sees me, who, who, who am I? Like, you know, like the saying of <laughs> if a tree falls, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. So I think that's a very important question to ask ourselves. Okay, so the next question, And final question is a question uh, which has an answer for me. The answer is hopefully visiting you in London, but I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. So Gilly, 
Gilio Val, after achieving the dream job, successfully funding your book, which is going to be world famous, hopefully getting over this horrible pandemic. What's next? First of all, I want to hug my mom and dad. Oh, I, I haven't seen them. I haven't seen them for more than a year. I need that. I need my roots back. After that, I don't know, a TV series or... Um, English translation. A show on Broadway. Oh my God, please, please bring Broadway back. I was listening to a playlist on Spotify yesterday by uh, Heath Apelepu, I think. A Broadway playlist and I was just crying. <laughs> you miss it so much. Yeah, I love musicals, by the way. It's it's my... Me too. Guilty pleasure. It's not really a guilty pleasure. It's just a why, pleasure. Why should it be guilty? And, and the West End back, closer to your house. So I think that's great. I think really going back to our theme, you know, at the end of the day, when you have a global pandemic and you're living inside a page from a history book, the most important thing is the basic stuff. Yeah, which is parents and Broadway, obviously. Yes. Julio Val, thank you so much for being here. I love talking to you. Thank you, Fedra. I had the pleasure. And everyone who's a Hebrew speaker or wants to look at letters they don't understand, please check out uh, Gili's book. It is amazing. It will make you feel really seen and heard and, um, and make you laugh a lot. Thank you so much, Giri. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Kedra. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Looks Like Work. You can find resources, links, and of course, the episode's show notes at roomsandwords.com. That's rooms, like a room, and words, and like an and.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I really, really hope that you'll like my newsletter too. My newsletter is something that I send out every week and I share thoughts, links, books, and just other things that I find thought-provoking, interesting, somehow contributing to these conversations that we're having here, or sometimes just joyously distracting. Again, the newsletter is sent out every week and you can find the link to sign up on my website at roomsandwords.com and I really hope to see you there and of course to see you here next week. Have a good one.